0: What if there was an ancient relic that people had been questing for that wasn't what they thought it was? It wasn't a cup, it wasn't a gem, it wasn't a stone, but something much, much stranger. Today, we look for the Holy Grail. This
1: is all the intent.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Uncover up I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is not Dr. Lee Kuma, who is on assignment right now, but instead we have a special guest pod person, Professor John Zapp.
1: Hello, thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, I think actually you're a pretty good choice for this episode, because we're going to be talking about things like religious beliefs, and history, and sacred relics, and your background. Not only is your personal background involved with religion, much more than, than, say, mine is, but also you have been formally trained in things like theology and history.
1: That's right. Yeah. So I do have a background in religion, in philosophy, history.
0: But we're also going to be looking at a mystery. Ooh. And so kick back, relax.
1: I like mysteries.
0: Well, you're going to like this mystery. (laughs) In the south of France, very close to the border with Spain, is a little French commune named Rhin-le-Chateau. The population as of the 2021 census, 89. Whoa. It's a small little town. That's small. That is, that is a tiny little town. They would have, uh, they would have a patisserie. <laughs> they would have nothing else. <laughs> you could get bread there. However, this tiny little French village gets a surprising number of visitors every year. In a good year, they get over 100,000 people showing up to this tiny town. 100,000. 100,000. Wow. And you might ask, why does this tiny little village get so much attention from visitors? I mean, it's pretty. I've seen pictures of it. But literally every tiny little French commune I've ever seen is pretty. They're all pretty. They're all adorable. Well, the answer lies around the village church, which is dedicated to St. Mary Magdalene. Oh, Who is? She's in the Bible,
1: mentioned in the Bible. She's, I think, a sex worker.
0: I mean, there's some debate about that, but she's normally associated with, yeah, the idea that she is a sex trade worker. Yeah, yeah. Although it's it's not made explicit. That's certainly an interpretation that's very common.
1: Yeah, right, right.
0: And this church is a very old one, or at least there's been churches on this site for a long time. It, It may be as long ago as the 8th century. But again, France is littered with old churches. So what's so special about this one? Well, most of the people who travel to Rouen-le-Château aren't just on vacation. They're on a pilgrimage. They're seeking something. And to understand why they're going to this place, we need to talk about a sacred relic, maybe one of the most famous religious items in all of Christendom, which is the Holy Grail.
1: (laughs) You've piqued my curiosity. I, I I, want to know how this story ends. I want
0: to know if this is where the Holy Grail is at this church. This story is going to get so weird. <laughs> oh, I, I'm excited. I'm excited. For, for a town that only has 89 people in it, this is too, too much weirdness for that smaller <laughs> town.
1: I might be one of the 100,000 next year that goes and visits.
0: Yeah, I'm sort of tempted to go the next time I'm there. So we're not going to do an in-depth analysis of the story of the Grail because this is a conspiracy podcast. But we do need to understand a little bit of its history in order to sort of comprehend the story that I want to tell about Ron Le Chateau. So what do we think of when we think of the Grail? I say to you, Holy Grail, and you think Indiana Jones. Yeah, that you're right. <laughs> Go on. Say more. Say more about Indiana Jones. <laughs> well, I mean, I I, I get the f- sensation that because this podcast spends so much time poring over like redacted CIA documents and weird, bizarre phenomena, that anytime somebody can talk about movies, it must just be a nice refreshing (laughs) breath of fresh air in your earbuds.
1: maybe that's why I'm here. I have all these uh, education in philosophy and religion, but I'm going to talk about pop culture.
0: Yeah, talk about, (laughs) tell us more about Indiana Jones. So set up the scene.
1: I am a kid of the 80s, and when Indiana Jones uh, came out, I would have been like nine or 10. And there's this one scene where... Indiana Jones is obviously trying to find these ancient relics. In one of the stories, it's trying to find the Holy Grail. And he, after doing some amazing detective work and finding all these clues with cryptic meaning that he's decoded, and jumping
0: on the back of trucks and shooting people and
1: going. (laughs) And this particular scene, after going through all these traps uh, that he obviously worked past and found where the room with all these cups, chalices that Yeah, just
0: a room filled with all sorts of every imaginable cup you could you could think of.
1: Yeah. And he enters it, uh, and someone else, obviously, the villain who's tracking him and following him enters it at the same time. a Nazi time. as I recall. A Nazi, yes. Uh which we can I now know through doing some research for this topic why there's that connection. Yeah we'll uh, come
0: back to we'll come back to Nazis. Yeah, yeah.
1: And so there's a knight who tells them, directs them, that they have to pick what they think is the Holy Grail. So it leaves it open to interpretation. Uh, And so the villain in the story here picks first, uh, because obviously he's filled with ambition, uh, pride. Avarice. uh, (laughs) That's right. And he he has very obviously ill intent. uh, If he actually finds the Holy Grail, it's going to give him unspeakable power it's gonna make him immortal and uh obviously he picks wrong and so he picks what he thinks is the holy grail uh but he picks a cup that just looks very expensive studded with gems it's very it looks just very very um regal drinks from it and and i remember this as a nine-year-old being scared about what happens next because he just like basically blows up uh, uh, yeah his like
0: skeleton bursts out of his face yeah, his hair
1: grows gray and it very fast his uh, fingernails probably yeah, go shooting yeah, out of yeah, his hand yeah uh, it's it's
0: gross it's some yeah. classic 1980s grossness yeah
1: but the graphics amazing you know for the 1980s uh, uh anyway and so indiana jones picks second uh and he still doesn't know but he takes an edge when he uses an educated guess saying Jesus uh, was was a carpenter, uh, and so obviously it's not going to be an expensive, elaborate-looking cup. It's going to be simple, right, because he was a carpenter. And so he picks the most plain-looking cup, drinks from it, uh, and it turns out to be the Holy Grail. One thing I like about this story, um, after now doing some research about the Holy Grail, is that it touches on a theme that I think exists in many other versions or iterations of this story. And that, obviously, Indiana Jones finds it because he is of pure heart.
0: So this idea that only the pure of heart can find the Grail. Right, right. That's That's in this film. Yeah, yeah. And So obviously, we're not going to look to Indiana Jones for the story (laughs) of the grail. If we're going to try and find the grail, that's not the place to go. But it is interesting because it is one of the places that it shows up in pop culture.
1: Right, right. And it plays on themes that we're obviously going to be, I think, talking about.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like a lot of the stuff that you just mentioned does play a role in the story of the grail going back almost a thousand years. Right, right. So- the idea is that I mean normally it's seen as a cup and it, it certainly was in Indiana Jones it, it was it was a cup and where does this cup emerge when you think of the holy grail which cup are you thinking of what i
1: think of right away uh, in 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 the gospel story uh is the last supper yeah so when i think of the holy grail the the go to place for me would be the last supper that's the supper that jesus has with his 12 disciples shortly before he dies.
0: Yeah, which is a crucial story in Christianity. It's a crucial story in Catholicism and Protestantism. Yeah, it's yeah. it's vital because this is sort of the moment and it's, and it's recorded in famous paintings. That's right. What's important to mention, because we're talking about the Bible now, is that the Bible actually doesn't say anything about the Holy Grail. Right. It, it isn't right. mentioned anywhere. Right. There is a cup referenced, yeah. but not in any kind of grand way. Yeah just in the sense that Jesus is holding a cup and he passes it around, a cup of wine. And the basic gist of what he says to everybody with this cup of wine is what?
1: This is my body and this is my blood. Uh, And so it becomes the foundational story and event for a very crucial ritual in Christianity across all branches of Christianity, uh, and that would be uh, the Eucharist or communion, in, in, in that sense, uh it's it's not just a story, and it's not just you know a cup in the story, but it plays a very significant role, in, symbolically, symbolically, in a very important ritual within
0: Christianity. And you know? what is this ritual? and like, imagine I know nothing about religion.
1: <laughs> OK. That's usually how I talk
0: about religion with you.
1: <laughs> what is,
0: and yet I've read the Bible more than almost anybody I know. That's true. What is the what is that ritual, and what's the significance of that ritual?
1: It's a ritual within the Catholic tradition that happens uh, at every Mass or every time uh, Catholics go to church, and so the focus on, on that is it's uh, a, a participation in the life of the church. So it's a critical uh, ritual that is a is symbolically it's a gesture to say this is uh, you are part of the Christian kind of family or community.
0: And in Catholicism, you are literally, you're drinking wine, but that wine is literally supposed to be.
1: Yeah. So within Catholicism, it's not just wine. It's thought to be literally the blood in the body of, of Jesus.
0: That this ritual turns that wine that you're drinking in church into the blood of Jesus. Yeah, that's
1: right. That's right. And the the term that goes with that is... Transubstantiation.
0: Transubstantiation.
1: (laughs) I never thought I'd be talking about transubstantiation.
0: Why do people come to the Uncover-Up to (laughs) hear people talk about transubstantiation?
1: (laughs) That's why I'm here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So that's a big part of this idea of the cup in the Bible, which then later on is going to kind of merge with this idea of the grail.
1: Right, right.
0: A later story emerges, not in the Bible, but a later story emerges, this idea that that cup is then used when Jesus is on the cross to capture some of his actual blood within it, and again, right. that's not in the Gospels. That's no. a story that shows up later. Yeah,
1: that's a, So I think it's Joseph of Arimathea that, that's that's said to have been at the cross that um, has the cup, right? Uh, but that's that's not in the, the 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 Bible.
0: But it does become part of the Grail story. Yeah, that's all right. of these things right. sort that's of right. become what eventually becomes the Grail story as we understand it. And a couple other key things about what the grail eventually turns into, this idea that it has magical powers. You mentioned the immortality in Indiana Jones. That is a part of the grail story historically, that anyone who drinks it can be granted immortality. Or maybe that you can survive just having the grail because it's constantly providing you with food. And so I, I guess in a symbolic way, it's saying that your faith will allow you to survive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The Grail was made famous in pop culture by Monty Python in the quest for the Holy Grail. It's a fascinating film. One of the pythons, I forget which one, actually is a medieval historian. And so brings a lot of sort of verisimilitude to this, this story. This ridiculous farce that they're making has some kind of interesting historical aspects to it. Indiana Jones, as you talked about, and various stories about King Arthur. Right. And it's in King Arthur that the idea of the Grail begins, not in the Bible, The cup's in the Bible, but the cup is just a cup. The grail begins with the Arthurian legends. Now, what's important is that grail doesn't specifically mean cup. It can be just a serving platter, like you would put fish on, for example. And over the years, the grail has been described as a cup and a platter and a book and a rock and an emerald and all sorts of different things. And the first mention of the grail that we know of is in a French romance titled Percival, the Story of the Grail. Percival, of course, is one of King Arthur's knights. Right, right. uh, Written by Chrétien de Troyes. Impressive. And what you can't see is I did a little flourish with my hand, (laughs) which I do whenever I say a French word. So Chrétien de Troyes writes it around 1190, and it's based on earlier legends about King Arthur and his knights because King Arthur is, of course, a fairly old story. And this, this particular story is about Percival growing from a young, innocent kid who knows nothing about combat and chivalry Into one of Arthur's most impressive knights. Now, partway through the story, he hasn't become that impressive yet. Percival has left his mother to go off and have nightly adventures, by which I mean adventures of a knight. Oh. Not at night. Not at night. Yeah. If you were having adventures as a knight at night, you were having nightly, nightly Nightly. adventures. (laughs) But he's having nightly adventures, not nightly adventures. And one of the lessons that he learns as he matures is to not ask many questions and to stay silent when you can. Hmm. And this is just a way of preventing yourself from saying something uncouth. It's a way of of maintaining a kind of quiet dignity.
1: That only makes sense, I think, in a hierarchical society where you have to know your place.
0: Well, and maybe and I mean then this obviously would have been a very hierarchical yeah, society, yeah, and knowing yeah. your place is a, is a crucial aspect yeah, of that. But yeah. what's interesting is that it ends up backfiring on him. Because Mm -hmm. he decides to return to his home. On his way, he walks through this ruined wasteland. And in this ruined wasteland, he encounters a wounded man fishing in the river. And Percival, being a pretty good guy, helps the man. And this wounded fisher turns out to be the king of the area. This is the figure of the fisher king. And Percival goes to the man's castle and he sees all sorts of weird stuff. There's like a procession of strange artifacts that come through the room as he's sitting there, including a spear with blood dripping from the tip, And another thing that passes through is a grail. It's not referenced that it's a cup. It just says it's a grail. And it lights up the entire room. Of course, Percival has a lot of questions. We would all have questions in this situation. Yeah, I would for sure. But what has Percival been taught to do? Don't ask questions. So he stays silent in order to maintain decorum and politeness. And that turns out to be the wrong tactic because that silence is misread as indifference in the story. And he wakes up the next day in a deserted castle. It's all gone. The people are gone. The artifacts are gone. Everything is gone. And he walks around this abandoned castle, and then he he leaves, and he walks across the drawbridge. And once he's across the drawbridge, the drawbridge raises up behind him so he can't return. Hmm. That castle is now forbidden for him. He's clearly done something wrong.
1: But he did what he was...
0: He did what he was told to do, but sometimes we're not told to do the right thing.
1: Yeah. I find that interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a surprisingly complicated message. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know how to, how to yeah, sense I don't, know how to, that I don't know how to
0: parse that message. <laughs> yeah. I mean you might have questions about it, but I imagine you'll probably stay pretty quiet. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so he goes off and he runs Percival goes off and he runs into a woman, and this is how you can tell this is a fictional story, because unlike real life where no one ever explains anything to us. In fictional stories, there's always a character who comes by and explains everything to the, to the, to the main character, right,
1: right. which is
0: super useful. And I wish that happened in real life. <laughs> I wish I could be in like a social encounter and then a woman would come by and say, well, actually, here's what really happened. <laughs> here's then. what you should have done. Here's what you should have done. Here's where you went wrong. That would be the best. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, we're out here in reality. Percival, fortunately for him, is in a fiction. And so he runs into a woman who explains if he had only asked about the grail if he had shown maybe some compassion about the wounds of the Fisher King, then the Fisher King would have been healed by the Grail and the wasteland would have been returned to its former glory. Hmm. Now, a bunch of stuff happens after that. Percival ends up as a knight in King Arthur's court. And after that happens, another character shows up. Another woman comes to the court and tells the knights that because of Percival's rudeness in the castle of the Fisher King, Britain would be ruined unless Percival finds the Grail but first he has to repent because only the pure can find the grail. Oh. And then Chrétien doesn't really finish the story. It just ends? It just sort of peters out. Ah, oh, okay. I mean, it is finished by other authors over the years, which okay. does a couple things. One, okay. it adds to the grail story, and two, it keeps the grail story circulating in society. For example, there was a guy who uh, whose name I will not be able to pronounce correctly, and I miss Lee very much, Wolf- Wolfram von Eschenbach, Somewhere Lee is cringing. He doesn't know why. <laughs>
1: and
0: it's because I said Wolfram von Aschenbach. <laughs> anyway, WVE, as I call him, wrote his own version a few years later in which the Grail was a gemstone. Oh,
1: okay. Interesting.
0: Because, again, the idea that it was a cup wasn't attached to it yet. Oh, uh, okay. In 1190, Robert de Boron, mm. a more comfortable wrote a story in which he links the idea of the grail and the holy chalice, that idea of the cup at the Last Supper that catches the blood. So it's in 1190, de Barron is the one who like firmly says, okay, the grail, the cup, they're the same thing. Mm, Okay. And those stories of the holy chalice had been circulating in some Christian communities since around the 5th century. So there was this idea that that cup was important, but it was de Barron was like, it's the grail. And then, from pretty much from then on, it's settled. The Grail, the cup, same thing. Hmm. And in the centuries following, the Grail becomes more and more part of the King Arthur story, and King Arthur himself becomes more and more associated with Christianity. And here's the thing about all these Grail stories: they would have been considered romances, not factual historical accounts, but adventure stories. Like romance is not in the sense of heaving bosoms and torn bodices and paperbacks with Fabio on the cover, but in the sense that they were they were stories that weren't meant to be taken literally as things that really happened, there are no known references from this time period of the Grail as a thing that either was genuinely being looked for or already possessed by anyone and and This wasn't true of all relics. There was a lot of relics that people were actively seeking out as real things the true the true cross, for example, people were looking for pieces of the true cross. People yep. were looking for the spear of uh, I forget it again. You know it. You just don't want to say Longinus on a podcast.
1: Longinus. Uh, they were looking for the Shroud of Turin. Yeah. Uh, that would be another one. Yeah. Uh, Which or, is a
0: thing that people claim does exist. Or I mean, something exists that people call the Shroud of Turin. Bones of
1: disciples. Yeah. Right, as as holy relics that can heal.
0: Relics were a legit thing that people were off looking for. Absolutely. And trying to gather. Yeah. And if you had a relic in your church, that was a big deal. Yeah. And so the fact that nobody references the fact that they have the Holy Grail or they're looking for the Holy Grail seems to indicate that the people of the time treated the Holy Grail as as something of a, a fictional idea. Yeah. Although we were talking about this before the recording, the idea of the difference between fiction and nonfiction that we have now isn't necessarily the same way that people would have broken down stories back then. Myth-making would be, you know,
1: literature today or poems, right? Not to be read as actual historical accounts of things that happened, but an elaboration or they're trying to
0: tell. or there's a truth within it that you can find in the story that's being told. That's right. It's not that the story genuinely happened, but the the truth of the story is real. That's right. That's right. So it it gets a bit complicated. Yeah, yeah. But I, I will say that historians argue that nobody is actually looking for the grail back then. Right. It's just in stories. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's pure myth-making. Yeah. yeah.
0: The idea is important. The actual physical thing is not important. Yeah. And there have been some artifacts since which people claim to be the Grail, but these all show up post-medieval period after the Arthurian legends were written and circulated. Hmm. Now, there's also, we're moving way forward in time now, there's also some some weird loose ties between the Grail and the Nazis in the 30s and 40s, and we already referenced this with Indiana Jones mostly through the work of SS officer and mythologist Otto Wilhelm Rahn. Right, right. There's been a lot made of this sort of Nazi occult connection, Hmm. probably too much, Hmm. but there was an aspect of it. And certainly Himmler was extremely interested in the occult. He was doing a lot of research on witch burnings. Uh, There was work done on Atlantis. Yeah, yeah. One of those things being a real thing and one of those things not being a real thing. Right, right. But it was all coming together for for this, this one sort of wing of the Nazi party, they were trying to build a new myth. Right. What was this new myth that they're trying to build? Why are they interested in the Grail and Atlantis? And It's, it's nation building, trying to
1: create this fabricated tale of the Aryans as a great nation uh, in yesteryear that has been lost throughout time. And these explorations, not just in France for the Holy Grail, but elsewhere, trying to uh, trying to rebuild this
0: new narrative
1: or rewrite history. And every empire does this, rewrite history.
0: Often looking back to some kind of fictional myth- right. mythological past where things were amazing. Yeah. And we sh- I feel like we should always be extremely nervous when somebody does that. Yeah. Sure, when somebody sure. says, no, 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 we've got to go back to this mythical past. Right, right. Because it's mythical. Yeah. And what are they trying to convince us of? Yeah. And what are they going to try and get us to do? That's right.
1: Well, and it tells you the power of story and the power of myth that the creators of these stories are trying to get its its citizens, its subjects to find compelling, right? And so I, I believe the they thought the Holy Grail in the context here was in southern France in some castle that was connected to the Cathars. And that was some heretical sect in the medieval period. They, they were... Uh, basically slaughtered by the Catholic Church.
0: And I think this is part of it as well. I think this is why the Nazis are interested in this story because if they could portray themselves not only as the descendants of some once grand mythical civilization, but also that they had been the oppressed ones, right? right. then that would justify their murderous rampages right. because yeah. they'd be able to say, oh, no, 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 we were the ones who were oppressed. We're just returning to the appropriate state. That's right. And so I think part of this this drive to build this myth is an attempt to defend their horrifying, murderous nonsense. Absolutely
1: it is. And it shows you the power of myth
0: and why we need to be careful with myth because it can be used to justify that kind of thing. Yep, yep, absolutely. I think we're seeing some of that today. Yeah, for sure. Be worried about people trying to return to a mythical greatness. Yeah. But what that does is it's sort of, we're now, we've shifted with this sort of modern story. Now we're not talking about the history of the Grail. Now we're talking about interpretation of the Grail. Yeah, yeah, And let's continue along that path. Let's look at some of the things that people said, because it, it was a fictional item. And so it's the story that's important. Let's talk about what the story means. There's all sorts of different interpretations. First one's kind of interesting. There's a lot of people who make the argument that the story of the Grail is a way of bringing in old pagan ideas and kind of incorporating them into Christianity. Which is something that I understand that religions often do. They'll incorporate older beliefs into the new versions. Yeah,
1: they do that all the time. The, the historical development of religions, obviously, in order for it to uh, appeal to a, a vast majority of individuals, has to build on prior beliefs that people have held uh, and to incorporate them into uh, a new religious tradition.
0: Uh, One way to do that is to take stuff that they're already familiar with, tweak it a little bit, and be like, oh, this is part of our religion. And then people say, oh, this doesn't seem that strange. That's right. I I recognize a lot of these tropes. Yeah. And so the argument is that specifically, the idea that the grail is always overflowing with abundance, that it's a reference to older pagan fertility beliefs, Hmm. and then that was just adopted into Christianity. Hmm. And that's an interesting idea. But what other people have argued is that, yeah, but the Grail doesn't have that aspect of it immediately. It shows up later Hmm. in the story of the Grail as the story has progressed. And so you would think that if it was basically adopting some kind of pagan ritual, then from Jump Street, those would already be there. They wouldn't show up later on. Right, right. Which makes some sense to me. Yeah. Other people have said that there is a more earthly explanation for the popularity of the circulation of these stories. And that is that they were propaganda for recruitment because when these stories are coming out, it's the 1100s, the 1200s, the 1300s. What big thing is going on that you would want to do some recruitment for?
1: The Crusades.
0: Yeah. The Crusades, which is, you know, that's going to be a hard sell. (laughs) And if you think about it, these stories were inspiring adventures about returning a lost kingdom to its former glory. And at the time of the crusades you can see why some people consider those stories to have played a role in motivating people to become crusaders. And not only that because only the purest noblest crusader can find the grail. The other thing that they these stories do is they encourage a nobility, a chivalry. Right. Because we think of knights as, you know, these chivalrous creatures. Right. But of right. course at the time they were more like warlords to a degree and they were like pillaging and attacking their neighbors and you could also see why somebody would be interested in spreading stories in which no 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 if you want the glory the way to glory is through a kind of chivalry is, right so is through a kind of nobility forming virtuous behavior yeah now other people have argued that what this story does is it reconciles two tricky things hmm. militarism which of course you need a lot of in the crusades and christianity Which you could definitely see is kind of overtly a pacifistic religion in a lot of the aspects of the Bible. I mean, what are some famous Bible bits that are overtly pacifistic?
1: Turn the other cheek. That's a big Um, one. Not only love your family, friends, but your enemies. Yeah, I mean, Um, what? Yeah, forgive.
0: I mean, who are blessed?
1: Yeah, blessed are the poor, the meek. And the uh, peacemakers. Yeah, the peacemakers. Yeah. yeah. It's topsy-turvy if you think about um, who are the, the noble ones. It's not the the ones in power, or I guess in this case, the knights with swords.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the one of the most important parts of the Gospels, I would say, is the Sermon on the Mount. And basically, the Sermon on the Mount is a plea for pacifism. Yeah, that's right. And yet, you're trying to put together a holy army to go invade a bunch of places. There is one part of the Bible that I feel like it, and it's not just me feeling this way, a lot of people have argued this, it doesn't quite fit in with the rest of this pacifistic aspect, and that is, of course, the book of Revelation. Right. Because <laughs> the book of Revelation <laughs> is all about militarism and might and vengeance, and it's a really tricky fit with the rest of the New Testament.
1: Yeah, it, uh, it's a tricky one to make sense of, for sure.
0: <laughs> and, and in your religious tradition, what did they do with Revelation?
1: Uh, it wasn't talked about. Um, <laughs> oh, so. We're just going to pretend this one isn't in the book. Yeah, it, it wasn't a book that was brought into, you know, there wasn't a lot of sermons on the book of Revelation uh, at all. <laughs> well,
0: but I mean, and you could see why, because so much of the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, the books of Daniel and Ezekiel, they're they're all about being oppressed and living through that oppression through faith. Right, right. But then you get to the book of Revelation, and it's this weird revenge fantasy. Yeah. yeah. And I I don't think it's coincidental that the book of Revelation has become this really important part of the Bible. And certainly when I go to meetings of religious groups, Hmm. the kind of religious groups that I interact with as part of conspiracy studying. Yeah, yeah. It's all Book of Revelation. Oh no, kidding! Like it's yeah. Revelation all the way down. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. The, this this weird revenge fantasy with demons and dragons and horses and exploding eyeballs and fire and and everything. Huh. Yeah. That's become like the text to go to. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. And well, eventually we'll do an entire episode on Book of Revelation. And somewhere again, Lee shudders. <laughs> And so people have argued that, yeah, this story of the Grail is useful for that because it sort of combines the idea of questing with the idea of the sacred and the holy, so that you can achieve a kind of holiness through militarism. I mean, these are knights who are going to look for the Grail. Right. Another argument is that it's a way of helping people understand this new idea at the time in 1215 that the church, the Catholic Church back then, the church, It was the only church really at the time in the area. They had canonized the idea that the wine was literally turning into blood of Christ. This was when transubstantiation was becoming the official canon of the church at the Mm. same time that the grail stories are coming out and circulating. So you could see why a person might argue that the grail story was at the very least influenced by this revolutionary concept and maybe even written in a way to help people come to terms with this, let's face it, pretty strange idea. Yeah.
1: Of the ones you've just listed, I think this one for me, at least, I think makes the most sense for a couple of reasons, I suppose. One of them would be uh, that you're appealing to mystery. Uh, And so the whole story of the Holy Grail, there's something mysterious about it all, right? It It requires uh, faith. It requires faith. It's not something that we can make sense of through reason, right? It's part fantasy, obviously. It's, It's... It's exciting the imagination uh, of those listening to these stories at the time. And with transubstantiation, there's an element of faith, obviously, that has to you have to turn to to make sense of that, Uh, the mysterious, uh, the supernatural, right? Um,
0: And in the Grail stories, I mean, again, the idea of drinking from the Grail is about gaining immortality. Yeah, the idea of partaking in the blood of Christ is about a kind of immortality and so you could see drinking from the grail, the blood of Christ it it all sort of comes together into this yeah, yeah, yeah of course what we should point out is that It might not be that these stories were for any of these purposes, but they did have these purposes. Yeah. like It wasn't a desire to make these stories do these things, but that these stories just did these things. It was a byproduct. It was a byproduct of the stories, and maybe these things were happening anyway, and that's why the story was popular. Cause and effect is kind of tricky when you're going back hundreds and hundreds of years.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But let's go modern for a second, because this is a story that people are still interested in. And let's move in away from theology yeah. to psychology. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I, I I find it so fascinating that there's still intrigue in in this story today uh, in the Holy Grail. So I'm curious about where this is going to
0: go. You're going to get uncomfortable, <laughs> is where it's going to go, because all right, think like early 20th century psychologists. Okay, you've got a story with a a cup, Ooh. with spears, mm-hmm. blood. Fluids and abundance
1: uh, what would Freud say I think you invited the wrong guest here oh. <laughs> something sexual, I'm guessing <laughs> yes, something
0: sexual, correct, really so yeah, of course well wow, what Freud something sexual with Freud yeah, and so the ultimate i mean, I'm not going to get into Freud <laughs> but but from a Freudian perspective. It's like the, the grail is this ultimate lost object, which represents the primary love object, which is hmm. the mother, which is blah, 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 Freud, nonsense, etc. <laughs> now, Jung, also interestingly, Jung didn't have an interpretation of the grail. Really? Which is strange because Jung was fascinated by myth yeah. and Jung was super interested in these ancient stories and yeah. the stories that we repeated and the stories That's that right. we told. Right. So you'd right. be like, why wouldn't Jung say something about the grail? He,
1: he doesn't, eh?
0: He does not. Oh, no, you no know really. Why? Why? He promised his wife he wouldn't. Really? Yeah. He promised his wife, Emma Young, that he would never write about the Grail.
1: Why the restriction? Because
0: she was a Grail expert. Whoa. Yeah, that's kind of sweet. Huh. And so what she said about the Grail was that it, quote, Signifies
1: the whole psychic man as a realization of divinity reaching right down into matter.
0: And, the hidden disposition to wholeness, which slumbers in the depths of the unconscious of each person.
1: So it's the interaction of the human and the divine, and
0: the feeling of
1: wholeness. Yeah, it's symbolically, that's what the Grail represents.
0: Can you imagine being at a dinner party with the Youngs?
1: <laughs> I actually would. I, I would find that fascinating.
0: All right. Well, we <laughs> will work on that. <laughs> now, my problem was. Yeah, I mean. Long-time listeners know that I've got issues with Jung because of his work on UFOs. But in general, I have problems with this psychoanalytic interpretation because they're ahistorical. Yeah, right. Like they don't take history into account. History doesn't matter because you have these sort of immortal archetypes and everything is just always working through these archetypes and so history doesn't matter. That's right. Whereas I feel like history does matter very, very much in the creation of ideas and how ideas are interpreted. Right. But you know what we can do now? What's that? Let's return to Ron Le Chateau. Ooh. Remember that story before we got lost in the transubstantiation <laughs> and, the, and the young and the Freud of it all? Yeah, yeah. And the etc. Okay, so let's go back in time. eighteen eighty five. The Vatican dispatches a priest in his early thirties, named Father Berenger Sonnier, into this sleepy little town. It's not a great post, it's not much of a flock, and it's a pretty rubbly church. And according to bank records, Father Saunier was quite heavily in debt when he took the post. However, his arrival in this tiny town of Ronde-le-Chateau causes something of a miraculous revitalization. The wasteland is healed. Because somehow he puts together the funds to completely rebuild the church and the grounds at the cost of what would now be millions of dollars. Hmm. This is a huge project. And the new church has all the usual things that you would imagine in a church. It's got new floors. It's got a new roof. It's got new stained glass windows. It's got a big statue of Asmodeus, the lord of demons, holding up a basin of holy water. All the things that you expect in a church.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: You know, Asmodeus. Yeah. The, the lord of the demons from the story of the Temple of Solomon. Uh, this is what new- were you doing in your religious <laughs> education? How do you yeah, not know these? The- How do I know these stories? <laughs>
1: I'm going to have to look that up afterwards.
0: You weren't paying attention <laughs> in Sunday
1: school. Most likely.
0: <laughs> and so that's weird. You can you can see pictures of this statue. It's it's odd. It's a bit odd. <laughs> the other thing that Sonier does, Father Saunier, is he buys a few plots of land and builds himself a Renaissance-style villa with all of the usual villa accoutrements. Hmm. An orange grove, a large library, a garden with a pond, a large cage full of monkeys, You know, all the usual things that you have in your nice door. And he also had his devoted and attractive 18-year-old housekeeper, Marie Dunarneau, to spend his time with. But, of course, being a priest.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: No (laughs) hanky-panky. The only monkey business that was going on was in the large monkey cage nearby. I'm sure. Yeah. Now, sadly, like all mortals, Sonier was unable to enjoy his demon statue and his monkey cage indefinitely, and he dies in 1917. Okay. Now, let's fast forward to the 1950s. Rumors start to circulate about what Saunier and his housekeeper Marie might have been getting up to under the cover of night back in the 1910s. Mm. But not just that, not what you're thinking. Okay. Also, they may have been digging around the graveyard. Okay. Which is not what you were thinking. No, it wasn't. For some reason. In fact, a local restaurateur named Noël Corbeau claimed that before her death in 1953, Marie Dernanon, the housekeeper had told Corbu a secret shared by her and father Saunière that there were treasures beyond imagination buried in that churchyard. Hmm. Not only were there 28.5 million gold pieces buried there, but Saunière had found ancient parchments hidden in the walls of the ruined church that were written in a combination of French and Latin. And this is allegedly how Saunière had funded the rebuild of the church and his villain and the, the monkeys. And then a visiting French aristocrat Named Pierre Plantard de St. Clair, heard the hand gestures, (laughs) heard the rumors and started digging around figuratively in the Bibliothèque Nationale, which is a big French national library, for information on the history of this tiny village of Rennes-le-Château to find out what's going on here, what's buried there, what could possibly be buried there. And what he finds in the Bibliothèque are hidden documents referencing an ancient society Hmm. The Priory of Sion. Oh. Well, let me tell you about this group. The secret group apparently were behind the formation of the Knights Templar back in the 12th century, who we did an episode on. They included this group, the Priory of Sion, included such dignitaries as Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton. These are some heavy hitters. And they were constantly, the Priory of Scion, were constantly working behind the scenes to protect secret information that, if it was released to the public, would radically change everything in Christendom. Hmm. And Plantard also learned, the the French aristocrat who's snooping around the bibliothèque, he also learned that he himself was part of the story. Wait, he didn't know this? He, didn't, he says he didn't know this at the time. He okay, said he's just, okay. he hears this interesting story, he looks into it, he's like, wait, I'm in this story too. Interesting, okay. Because, according to the documents, he was the descendant of a Merovingian king, Dagobert II. Dagobert. (laughs) the deuxième. And was therefore the rightful heir of the French throne. Oh, wow. Holy cow. (laughs) It's a good day for him. (laughs) Yeah. Imagine coming across those. Wait, I'm the king of France. What a day. But it wasn't just the Merovingian line from Dagobert II that had survived, according to the authors of the 1982 book, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which was a book based on these documents found by Plantard. Now, this book was written by Michael Béjean, Michael Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln. And again, it, it's drawing heavily from the claims made by Plantard. And what they claim is that the Merovingian line actually could be traced all the way back to a simple carpenter from Nazareth, who was Ooh. alive in the first century. Can I guess? Okay. Jesus. You're right.
1: Ah. Amazing.
0: Yes. <laughs> so the idea is that Jesus and Mary Magdalene, yep. remember and that's yep. whose church this is, yep. Saint Mary Magdalene, had actually conceived children, children. And the descendants of those children were still alive. Jesus's bloodline was still alive. Right. And this ultimately was the main goal of this secret group, the Priory of Sion, and the most important piece of knowledge they possessed. The so-called grail that people had been looking for wasn't a cup. It was a womb. Mm. The womb of Mary Magdalene and the bloodline it produced. Oh. And you're not convinced, but okay, check this out. <laughs> Medieval French for Holy Grail? Yeah. Grau. French for Royal Blood? Sangreau. Okay. <laughs>
1: now I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah. The Sangreau was
0: the Ah, oh. if you see what I mean. Huh. And this is the knowledge that Father Saunier and his housekeeper Marie discovered in the church grounds all those years ago. Ah. Oh. And the gold coins, which allowed them the monkey house and the <laughs> Osmodia statue and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow.
0: So that's wild. That's earth-shaking. Yeah. I mean, that changes everything about the the government of, of France. It changes everything about our understanding of the Bible and the, and of Jesus. And it's like, this is mind-blowing stuff. Right, right. But let's look into it a little bit. Yeah. Let's go backwards now. Let's hmm. go backwards. We came forwards from Father Saunier, and now let's go backwards to him again. Okay. So, Béjean and Lee and Lincoln, they wrote this book, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. And they were basing their claims on the claims of Pierre Plantar, that guy who was snooping around the library. Right. So let's look at him again. So before France was invaded by Nazi Germany in World War II, this guy Plantar was already a devout anti Semite and an anti Mason who wanted to create a secret society that would be committed to this kind of ultranationalist mysticism. Hmm. The kind of thing we were talking about before with the Nazis. Nazi, yeah. Like he wants his own sort of Nazi mystique. Yeah. 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 It was gonna be called the Alpha Galates. Hmm. now after the invasion by the nazis plantard wanted to work for the vichy government Hmm. now very briefly after france gets invaded by the nazis it's cut in two there's occupied france in the north and then the south is a government that's basically a puppet government of the nazis and that's that's vichy france yeah
1: yeah
0: he wants to go work for the vichy government and he ends up getting arrested by the nazi authorities actually for trying to assemble an illegal association spends a couple months in prison after the war he joins the freemasons which is odd as a radical anti-Mason. And in 1956, he forms an association he called the Priory of Sion. So he started it in the yeah. 50s. Okay. Yeah, he started it in the 1950s. This is yeah. not an ancient society. Right. He started right. it yeah. as a kind of fake myth yeah, to build towards this nationalistic. Yeah. And he traveled to the village of Ron Le Chateau after hearing the rumors of hidden treasure And then inspired by the stories, planted false documents in the Bibliothèque Nationale. Those documents that he found that said he was the king, there's a reason why they said Ah. he was the king. It's because they were forged and he planted them in there. And then they would support his claims about the Merovingians and the Prior of Sion and all that stuff. And we know these documents are forged because we have access to them. They're written in modern Latin, not medieval Latin. Hmm. The documents refer to a Bible called the Vulgate. Does that name mean anything to you?
1: Yeah, that's a Latin, isn't that? It is. Yeah.
0: But it it wasn't published until 1889. Yeah. So these aren't ancient documents. Yeah. These are new documents. And Plantar also convinced his friend Gerard de Sede to write a fictional history of the Priory of Sion and pass it off as legit. And de Sede would eventually come forward and admit the fraud, not only of the book he wrote, but of the documents and all that stuff. So it's just, it's scams. It's scams. Yeah. But what about the rumors about the town of Ron Le Chateau that brought the scammer to them? Mm. So let's go back a little bit. Well, those rumors were originally spread by Noel Corbeau, that restaurateur, who had recently converted Father Sonier's villa into a hotel. So he, what, why was he spreading rumors about hidden treasure in this tiny little town that nobody cared about?
1: commercial interest?
0: (laughs) Because he had just opened a hotel and he had a restaurant. He was just trying to drum up interested in this town to bring in tourists. And in 64, Corbus sold the hotel for a tidy profit and bought another nicer chateau in another part of France. Hmm. Then he was killed a few years later when the Renault 16 he was riding was hit by a truck, which is a very French way to die, getting killed in a Renault 16. And he was buried back in the cemetery at Rondeau Chateau. Okay. And what that means is that his corpse now is in that cemetery At risk of being dug up by treasure hunters who were inspired by the lies that he told. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Okay, but what about Father Saunier? Right. Okay, so let's go back a bit further. Yeah, yeah. He was just a crook. Really? That's where he got the money from. He was selling masses and taking bribes. Oh, great. (laughs) A priest can give three masses a day and people can donate for those masses. Yeah. And Saunier was selling thousands of masses a day. No, You really? can only do three, but he would sell like a thousand a day. <laughs> and, in, and we know this because in 1910 to 1912, he was tried by the church for corruption. Wow. Which means that this conspiracy theory about the bloodline of, of Jesus being yeah. the Holy Grail was based on a book that was based on a scammer with forged documents <laughs> that was based on lies told by an opportunistic hoaxer that was based on the crooked dealings of a swindler, and everything stands on the foundation of a fictional story that people at the time wouldn't have taken as true.
1: Right, right.
0: And that's the story and, and of Ron Le Chateau. Wow.
1: Wow. That's quite a interesting tale. <laughs>
0: it scams all the way down. And this is something that Lee and I also discovered when we did a deep dive into UFOs and flying saucers last uh-huh. year. Is that it's amazing when you get into the world of conspiracy, tragically, how much scams there is. Sure. How much scams sure. there are. Yeah, yeah. How many scams there how are. many? I scams got there. Are. <laughs> wow. And again, it, it points out that we have to think carefully about these ideas. Because the other thing that I think we pointed out today is the danger of myth. How yeah. myth can be used to build these false ideas in people's heads. Yeah. It's hard to get people to commit atrocities. Yeah, and myth making is one of the tools. One of the tools, for sure. That's used for it. Yeah. That's used to contribute to atrocities.
1: And when you see the the intersection of religious myths in nation building, that um, scares me. That that's even scarier.
0: Yeah, the Crusades, the Nazis, again and again. This thing that can only be discovered by people of pure heart. Yeah. It seems to be of. Very interest with people who have extremely impure motives. (laughs) Except Indiana Jones.